So today we're finishing up our Why Christian Sermon Series. Next week we're going to begin a whole new sermon series. And this one's going to be based on the Brittany Brown book. It's brand new called Braving the Wilderness. Um, I know Ken is up north this week and he's reading it. It just came out last week, so he's plowing through it. The six-week sermon series is also going to start um, our membership renewal series. So here at Renewal, we go one year renewal of membership, and so that will begin next week. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I was preaching in this Why Christian sermon series, we were basically asking the question, why are you still a Christian with all of the stuff that goes on associated with Christianity? And I shared pretty personally that the, the main reason I'm still a Christian is just experience of Jesus. Right? That I've had just real personal spiritual encounters with the divine that have felt as real to me as anything ever has. And so even when I've been mistreated by the larger church, and even when I've felt let down at times by being handed sets of beliefs through the years that I've come to regard as untrue, that there's a sense of God's presence and His guidance that's felt as real to me as anything that I know. But there's something that I, I haven't actually often said out loud to people, sometimes one-on-one -on -one in like a pastoral way. Um, certainly it's the first time I said it publicly, but I know when, when I changed my vocation when I was about 30, so I had been working in business I actually had a little bit of a dream to be a history professor, which I would have really loved, I think, down the line. And so I was thinking about going into pastoring and, and missionary work, and I was feeling led to do it, but I knew that I needed to make a deliberate decision that if I could do this with my full heart, I needed to feel okay about what I was doing with my life, even if it turned out there was no God. That makes sense? Like, even if there's no God, I want to make sure that I can look back on my life and not regret spending decades leading people towards something that could either be harmful or even just sort of useless if it turned out that God didn't exist. So I do, I do believe there's a God, but I've known me long enough to know that there are periods of doubt. Right? That they have come, that they certainly will come, and I wanted to do it um, not only Eagle, but a wonderful book called Walking on Water. And she talked about embracing doubt as part and parcel of a healthy faith. And I think that that's a really good thing to do. And many of us here in this room have gained enough hard-won wisdom to realize that claiming certainty about anything is a fool's errand. And embracing certainty about something as mysterious as God can seem like the height of arrogance. So I thought, okay, even if there's no God, would I feel okay spending my life practicing this spiritual tradition and going as deep as I can? Like learning all of the wisdom tradition and praying and meditating and then teaching other people to do the same. So, I mean, clearly I decided that I could. But I wanted to just briefly share why, like what it is that attracts me to the faith besides these spiritual experiences. And then I've asked Brandon and Ruth to come up, and he's actually going to share it. We'll do about half of the sermon, I think. Because I feel like you guys hear Ken and I talk a lot, and it's important to have some other voices in this series. So Jesus sometimes talked about the kingdom of God being like a giant family dinner. Right? And this idea of God preparing and presiding over this banquet table for humanity, it has ancient roots in the Hebrew scriptures. And the people that Jesus was interacting with and teaching, they were familiar with this metaphor. Right? It's a theme that runs throughout our tradition and throughout the Jewish tradition. And in the Old Testament, there's a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah was a visionary, and he had this grand vision for a party. 
And it was a vision where people from all nations of the earth would gather together on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and they would have an extravagant banquet with the best food and the best wine. And I mean, that, that's like the key to my heart, right? Like good food, good wine, good company, the kind of food that a king would serve honored guests. So I'm going to read this from Isaiah 25. Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he's going to destroy the shroud that holds all people, the sheet that covers all the nations, and he's going to swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all of the faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken, and in that day they will surely say, This is our God. We trusted him, and he saved us. Surely this is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. If you can just picture that, all of the nations invited to this feast, everybody, the whole global family is able to come to this giant table, and nobody there is coming as a servant. And nobody is coming to that table as a second-class citizen. They're honored guests. And at this banquet table, sadness is going to go away, and shame is wiped from our experience, and there's goodness and joy and good food, and there's this deep connection and companionship between God and his people, right? There's conversation and joy and laughter. And I love this picture because I think it's so romantic, like with a capital R, right? It's this visionary, almost utopian picture of connection between God and his people that Isaiah is sharing with us. And I'm attracted to a faith whose big idea is a giant family table table where everybody is welcome. Right? And any meal where one group, whether it's women or people of color or LGBTQ or any other like, category of people, receives less respect and less dignity falls short of God's table. Now there's a, um, a quote that I think I've shared probably before. It's one of my favorites. My friend Jeff Chu He's actually, he's a journalist, he's at Princeton Seminary now, studying to become a journalist, or a pastor. He said this once, and I thought this was so beautiful. He said, the table that I long for, the church that I hope for, has each one of you sitting around it, struggling to hold the knowledge that you, vulnerable you and courageous you, are beloved by God, and not just welcome, but you are desperately and fiercely wanted. Oh, I thought, oh, that desperately and fiercely wanted. Right? It's like, and we can write it, Josie, you are fiercely wanted. Right? Linda, you are fiercely wanted. Lyle, you are fiercely wanted. Crystal in the back, you are fiercely wanted. The table I long for, the church I hope for, has each of you sitting around and struggling to hold the knowledge that you Vulnerable, you courageous, you are beloved by God, not just welcome, but desperately and fiercely wanted. And creating this kind of table is not easy. Right? That space that Isaiah is talking about, whether that's a church where we are practicing this kind of community, whether it's our families, our communities, we might call that the kingdom of God. This space that Isaiah is talking about where everyone is feasting together it is hard fought and hard won. And it requires a lot of us. It requires self-giving love. It requires that we do the work, the real work of forgiveness and reconciliation when that's possible. 
It requires that we put other people's needs above our own and that we serve one another. And we have to learn to live with each other's differences. And, you know, I loved what Ahana read this morning. I actually didn't know Romans 14 was going to be the reading. I usually pick them out when I, when I uh, preach, but I didn't this week. Because I feel like, those of you who know me, I like, refuse to read the Apostle Paul in a lot of my talks. Because I just thought he was a jerk. <laughs> and especially toward women. I was like, man, this guy is this, like alpha male extreme, and he's kind of rude. But the older I've gotten, the more I like, really appreciate him and what he was trying to do. Right? Or in Romans 14 and 15, that we know we had developed into a third way approach to community. Paul is trying to keep this table together with all of the differences of opinion. And he's saying when there's disputable matters, we have to agree to disagree, but we have to err on the side of intuition. Right? And so as a gay woman, I can say that I want my conservative brothers and sisters at the table. I want them there. Like some of them are my family, you know, or friends. But they have to agree to treat me with equal dignity to themselves. Otherwise, I experience the judgment, and that becomes an unsafe relationship for me. And then on my part, I have to agree to not think contemptuously of them. I can't look down on where they're at, but I have to learn to honor them for their, their sincere conviction, for trying to honor God the best they can. And this really requires maturity, and it requires this, um, discipleship on both sides of that equation. You know, oftentimes what happens when we try to create these communities is that people start demanding special table rules, right? They start demanding that the scapegoat of the day, whoever that is, be relegated to a side table. You know, like, you women, you shouldn't be preaching. Like, you go sit over there while all of us talk about whether or not you should be able to preach. Because some of us think you can and some don't. Right? So go sit over there. And when people start insisting on their own rules like that, what Jesus does is he beckons us to protect the vulnerable. Right, to stand up for the vulnerable. And so I'm attracted to this vision of creating this table where everybody is welcomed equally without any faction, creating special table rules, when God and herself has welcomed every single one of us on equal terms. And I think that's a beautiful dream for the world. And the Christian tradition equips us with a framework that has been passed down, it's been honed, it's been critiqued, and self-critiqued through the millennia, and will continue to do so that helps us to learn those skills that allow for that banquet piece, right? That in a church is where we're supposed to be able to learn how to forgive, how to stand up for the oppressed and for the vulnerable. And I think that Jesus, when I would read him in the Gospels, I was reading him afresh in my late 20s, I was like, man, the way he lived his life, embracing the outcast, the way he would go and he would talk to the people he wasn't supposed to talk to, like the Samaritan woman at the well who had been divorced four times or something. Or he would touch the unclean. And people would think, like, oh, they will pollute him. That's not what scripture's saying at all. They're saying, Jesus, but every time he touched somebody, he like brought them in to the wider community. He restored them. And I looked at that and I thought, man, the way he lives his life, embracing the outcast, and the way that he has exposed that scapegoat mechanism for what it is. You know, like you women, go sit at this table. It's a false way of maintaining peace at the table, at the expense of the vulnerable. And I think that Jesus showed us the way that we can keep this from happening. Right? That we find a way to save the table from imploding, right? from having people turn on each other through him. And in fact, like if we get it really big, I think it's a grand idea of a way that we save the whole world 
from adoring. Right? That we literally find our salvation as humanity by following this path of laying down our lives for love and working for the sake of this beautiful banquet table. Right? So even if, for whatever reason, this whole spiritual you know, shebang turns out to be some evolutionary fluke or you know, some human construct, I don't think it is. But even if it is, I think this big idea of the banquet table and these time-honored disciplines that we employ to help us attain this vision is valuable. And as I thought about it, I thought that's worth living for, and to me, it's worth dying for. That Christianity, what it is at its core, it's an idealistic dream of a diverse community of people who are able to make space for everyone in the family of God. And we don't do this perfectly. In fact, many people who call themselves Christian have participated in scapegoating. I have done so. I'm still learning in the places where I do it. But I think that that idea of creating those kind of communities is worth investing all that we have and all that we are. And to me, the alternative was, well, I could grow really cynical about humanity. And that's not the way I want to live my life. And I thought, I can look back on my life and say, you know, I, choosing faith in this hope and choosing hope above all and choosing love, I can, I can live with that. I think that's a good way to live. And Jesus. I mean, Jesus is just awesome. So that's my little thing. I'm going to invite Brandon um, to come up and just share a little bit. Maybe because, you know, Brandon grew up in a Christian faith, but you really came to embrace faith, I would say, for yourself as an adult. And I thought that's, that's an important voice to be able to have, where it's like actually a chosen path. So come on up, Brandon. But the best problems took years. 
A cardinal example of this is my growing distrust as a kid of anyone who claims that quilt bags, queer, undecided, inter, lesbian, the rest of the stuff, any claims that those folks couldn't pursue themselves and relationships and be Christian. I couldn't understand how a genuinely loving relationship between peers pursuing God could be wrong. I didn't get it. I insisted on a logical answer that stemmed from love for queer people instead of judgment, and I never got a satisfactory answer. So, I concluded that until new evidence comes in, everyone else is wrong. <laughs> Seems pretty straightforward. God and I had the quiet agreement that I was open to being proven wrong, but for the moment, I was going to err on the side of love. And that conviction cracked open an important truth for me. It told me that authority and prestige are meaningless. The way we always do things are inherently suspect. And the wisdom of the dominant group must be challenged. And the reason for that is because the rules we're told to live by put us in a game that we can't win. There is no success great enough that will satisfy those rules. It's always possible to be richer, to be prettier, to succeed with less effort, to be more normal. This game is designed to break us. And the good news is, we have a God who sees that and refuses to accept it. But God does something that we don't expect. The board and the pieces and the players all stay the same. But we get a different set of rules. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Humble people are very fortunate, for the kingdom of heaven is given to them. Those who mourn are fortunate, for they shall be comforted. The meek and lowly are fortunate, for the whole wide world belongs to them. Happy are those who long to be just and good, for they shall be completely satisfied. God gave us a completely different set of rules that lets us find value in our actual experience, not the ones we're told we're supposed to have. As a personal example of this, some of you know that I lived with severe chronic pain and illness through adolescence and early adulthood. It turned out I had Lyme disease for 14 years. I went through a lot of doctors, and more blood tests and x-rays than I can count. But the results always came back as normal. So despite the pain and the associated insomnia, depression, illness, the loss of mobility, I kept doing what I was supposed to do. I kept doing the thing that normal people do. I went to college to study technical theater following my love, just like everyone told me I was supposed to do. And every year I got worse, I pushed away the inevitable truth 
that I was, I was physically incapable of doing the work I was trained for. I kept following the rules, working hard and grinding out success on three hours of sleep a night. And for a, a few years later, I was finally successfully diagnosed and treated. And after nearly 15 years, I had my first pain-free day. And I cried. Because I didn't know the weather could be like that. And so I got right back on the horse. I got a job as a carpenter at U of M. I moved to MC, uh, moved in with my girlfriend, life was looking pretty good. Fast forward three years, I was getting sick again. I had to take at least two sick days a month. I ate seven to 9,000 calories a day and I was losing weight. Um, and my doctor told me I had the right kind of problem. I had to leave that job because I couldn't physically do it. My body was too burned out. That much time of illness has permanent consequences. So I left that job to start working in the budding Detroit film industry. The week before Snyder cut the film incentives. <laughs> so in the next six months, I lost my career, my apartment, and my partner for five years. I felt utterly destroyed. Because I was still playing by the old rules. The old rules told me that I was a failure. They told me that all of my 20s were a waste. And the only thing that I had to show for that time were scars and shame. But Jesus says that the poor in spirit are blessed. He said that those who mourn will be comforted and the gentle will inherit the world. I felt so broken that no one could accept me. But here's Jesus saying, that's exactly what I love the best about you. The places that are tender, the things about me that I want to hide because they are tough and they're strange or shameful or just weird. Jesus says those are the best bits. My Christianity isn't fire insurance. And it isn't to pay the tab for being a bad person. It's the slow transformation of how I see things. It's learning to see myself the way that God sees me. It's learning to love my real self, to love my secret self. And that transformation feels a lot like breaking. It can feel like losing hope because we have to give up the old rule book. You have to give up. You have to give it up. We have to actually change to be changed. But even in the hard times, that new life is so much better. It is so much better than anything that the old rules promised. There's a Japanese art form called kintsugi, and it's the process of mending broken bowls with gold and platinum. I think you might see where I'm going with this. 
the precious metal is ground to dust, and then it's mixed, it's mixed with lacquer. And that's used to fix together the broken pieces that have come apart. And the mended seams aren't solid. They're often as thick as my finger. Instead of trying to hide the repair, the goal is to highlight it, to celebrate the events that that piece has been through. And I think that's how God sees us. The places we think are broken, the places we think are unlovable, are the very places that God wants to highlight and celebrate. Jesus went on to say, you are the world's light. A city on a hill, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light. Let it shine for all. Let your good deeds glow for all to see, so that they will praise your Heavenly Father. Jesus coming up and sitting across from you. Place your hands in front of you. Just imagine. 
some of the bits about you that you feel most ashamed of or embarrassed about? Or that make you feel weak? Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.